Welcome to the first episode of Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. If you already know who I am, that's probably because you've watched Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. On that show, I cover the big stories of the day. Most topics get around 15 minutes of attention, and then we move on. The purpose of this podcast is to do the precise opposite. I'll be taking key topics I think are vital for understanding the world and devoting not just a show to them, but a whole series. Topics will range from the politics of China to possible climate solutions, or trade unionism to the history of the MI5. The idea is that by the end of each collection of shows, both you and I will be a bit of an expert. Crash Course won't have ads. We're instead funded via Patreon, so please do head over to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod to become a supporter. That's the only way to get access to every episode, and it pays for the kit needed to make the show, as well as the research, production and editing put in by me and the Crash Course team. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. We really do appreciate it. So what have I chosen as my first topic? Well, regular Navarra viewers will know I have one pet peeve which dwarves all others. Landlords. And specifically, why I have to pay a huge proportion of my wages to pay for someone else's mortgage. The irritation this causes me is partly a moral one. My landlord didn't build the house I live in, and he doesn't provide much of a service. Yet for around 40% of the hours I work, my income doesn't go to me, it goes to him. But this irritatingly unjust situation also has wider social consequences. The money which I spend on rent, which I imagine ends up sitting in a bank account somewhere in the home counties, could have been spent in the local community. I can say without a shadow of a doubt that if I didn't have to pay that £800 every month in rent, I'd go for more meals out, and I might even pay to get the batshit dog I share with an ex-partner trained. So that's my personal vendetta that motivates this first season of Crash Course. But I'm sure I don't need to tell you it's not journalists like me who are the biggest victims of the UK's housing crisis. According to housing charity Shelter, more than 4 million people in the UK regularly have to cut back on basic living necessities such as food and heating in order to pay their rent. 9 million live in homes which suffer from mould, condensation or damp, and this is a direct consequence of us having a housing system in which people with wealth and property hold all the power, and those without have none. So, over the course of this series, I'll be surveying the current state of renting in Britain and what we can do to change it. Along the way, I'll speak to families forced to live in temporary accommodation due to a lack of council homes, to young professionals paying hundreds of pounds just to view properties in London, and to experts and activists fighting for a housing system that doesn't screw us all. So we've got a lot to get through. But for episode one, I want to stick to the basics, and I want to keep the issue close to home. That means in the next half hour or so, the question I want answered is this. Exactly why is my rent so high? For context, I live in a three-bed ex-council house in Hackney, which I share with two other people. We're lucky enough to have a living room, which is sadly not a given for people house-sharing in London, and we do have a garden. But I'm still not convinced that justifies the £800 a month I pay for my modest double room. Now get ready, because with those details to hand, this episode will guide you through a whirlwind tour of the economics of high rents, the modern history of British housing policy, and whether I myself am to blame for high rents in Hackney. And we can start with the economics and the issue of demand and supply. Because according to most economic explanations, the reason my rent is so high is because there are a lot of people, like me, who want to live in Hackney, and there aren't enough houses in Hackney to go around. 
There is, of course, intuitively a lot of truth in that. But according to my first guest, it's not the whole story. Laurie McFarlane is co-author of Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. So when conventional economics that you'd find in, you know, a textbook or in universities says that rents are basically like any other market. And so the price that you pay is mainly a function of supply and demand. So where supply on the one hand and demand on the other intersect, that is the market price, if you like, that that people will pay in the market. Now, that has some degree of truth to it. It's not that supply and demand aren't an issue at all. But what it overlooks is the fact that markets themselves, you know, are not this sort of neutral arbiter or, or laws of nature, that they're actually constructs and they're constructed by, of course, things like laws uh, and regulations. And so if we look at the kinds of laws and policies and regulations uh, that might apply to something like the rental market, that has dramatically shifted over time. And that in turn has had a dramatic impact on the level of rents that people pay. Um, and we can see this again, you know, it's, it's sometimes useful just to compare the UK to elsewhere. So if you look at somewhere like Germany, so Germany in contrast to the UK has things like quite strong tenant protection laws that some cities also have uh, rent controls as well. Um, and what that basically reflects is that landlords in Germany have less bargaining power uh, than they do here in the UK. And therefore, unsurprisingly, rents uh, are lower in Germany than they are in the UK. We have basically, over time, created a sort of legal and, and political architecture, if you like, that is heavily skewed with a bias towards uh, property ownership and towards landowners at the expense of tenants. Um, and so, you know, in Germany, renting is more secure, it's more affordable. The majority of people choose to rent rather than own. Uh, and in the UK, we're kind of the opposite of that. And so just because I really want us to to get into this, because I think it's an important question. I mean, let's be super concrete. I live in Hackney. That's in East London. I pay loads of rent for a small room in a shared flat. And the most obvious reason for that, you know, if you were to ask um, an economist, you say, well, the problem here is there is massive demand to live in Hackney for all sorts of reasons. Good bars, close to places where you can get a decent job. Um, and the supply of housing isn't isn't big enough private developers or the council or whoever haven't built enough houses and therefore you pay very high rent. So why concretely does that not capture everything about this? Why, other than a shortage of housing, do I pay such high rent in Hackney? So within within the UK, obviously, we have rents and house prices vary, you know, quite significantly across diff- different parts of the country. And often what you, you find in relation to housing and land is that areas that are more locationally desirable, if you like, have higher rents and higher house prices because they have better transport links, job prospects, better amenities. And so you would expect rents to be higher in Hackney than you would say in more rural parts of of the country. But of course, underpinning all of that is what I was just talking about, which is, you know, rents across the board in the UK are higher than you might find elsewhere in the continent. Uh, and that's partly because, uh, as I said, of all of this, uh, the, the laws and the regulations, etc., that underpin the private rented sector in the UK compared to elsewhere, which we should say as well is quite unusual uh, compared to other parts of the country. And I think just to say as well, the, the argument around supply, you know, would supply make housing more affordable? So in relation to rents, I mean, clearly 
in Hackney. Uh, there is, you know, I, I'm not against building more housing in Hackney. I think that'd be a good thing. I think it should be housing that's that's affordable, that's secure, and that would be a good thing. So I'm not in that sort of anti-development camp, if you know what I mean. But I think it's important to recognise that building more housing uh, alone is not going to be a solution to the systemic housing affordability crisis that we have today. And there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, if you just build more, say, private sector housing, that's not going to have much of a dent in housing affordability. Um, you'd need to build an astronomical number of houses for that to happen. And of course, in Hackney, the ability to build an astronomical number of houses is pretty limited. So according to Laurie McFarlane, when it comes to the rent I pay, supply and demand of homes does matter. But it isn't the whole story. Also important is the kind of regulations that are imposed on landlords and the rights that are given to tenants. And the type of housing also matters. If we build public sector housing, that might have a different effect on rent levels to if we leave housing to the private sector. And in fact, in Britain, that is something we used to do. Britain used to be among the world's most ambitious nations when it came to building council homes. The result was that housing in Britain was, for many decades, getting ever more affordable while offering ordinary people in Britain secure and high-quality places to live. It might seem an age away from the reality of housing policy today, but to properly understand where we are now, it's useful to understand where we've come from. Aspen Gardens, the new block of council flats in Hammersmith, recently received their official blessing, so to speak, from Mr Naren Bevan, Minister of Health, who referred to the housing situation in general. When the September figures are announced, it will be seen that uh, we have already reached the figure of 750,000 new houses that was the coalition's first target. On the subject of overcrowding, the minister pointed out the disadvantages of sharing homes. That um, it's all right to, to have visits from your mother-in-law, but you don't want to live with her all the time. In spite of the modest rents, which vary from 13 and 6 to 26 and 6 plus rates, these particular flats can boast of many first-class amenities. The kitchens, as you see, are really well fitted out and should help to make life a lot easier. And to judge from the other rooms in the furnished specimen flat, occupants ought to be extremely comfortable. You heard there Nye Bevan, Labour's Minister of Health and Housing, speaking in 1948, the midpoint of Labour's post-war government. That government, led by Clement Attlee, wasn't the first in Britain to build council homes, but it was, at the time, by far the most ambitious. John Boughton is author of Municipal Dreams, The Rise and Fall of Council Homes, and a history of council housing in 100 estates. In 1945, the first Labour government, the first majority Labour government, I should say, uh, came in with a very different philosophy uh, regarding council housing. Uh, and, and Bevan, of course, Nye Bevan, Minister of Health and Housing, was the avatar of this, the, the, the personal and political representative of this new idealism. Um, and Bevan, of course, very famously talked about the living tapestry of a mixed community, and he saw council housing as uh, provided for, for a cross-section of the, of the populations, perhaps not the, uh, the very rich, but certainly the middle class and working class. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, the 1949 Housing Act, which was the flagship legislation of that Labour government, was 
was the first to remove the stipulation that council housing be specifically designated as working class housing. All previous legislation referred to the labouring classes, artisans, the working classes. Um, and Bevan, of course, uh, was committed not only to quantity, uh, but in his own words, to quality. He, he made this distinction very specifically uh, in a speech to the House of Commons. Uh, and what's notable under the uh, housing built by the 4551 Labour government, 805,000 council homes in a period of genuine austerity, real economic hardship, was the quality that um, Bevan committed to. Uh, three bedroom houses with two inside toilets for the first time and an increase in space standards of around a third. So so Bevan not only proclaimed but practised very high ideals in, in terms of the the, uh, that post-war government. And what was remarkable, if you think about politics today, the Tories, when they came into power, continued essentially with a similar policy and in fact built more homes and more council homes than the Labour government that preceded them. So could you could you talk about that? How should we understand the fact that the Tories built more council homes than the Labour government before? Yes, it's the case that um, in the period of so-called post-war consensus, the Tory party was was equally committed to council house building. I think they applied a slightly different philosophy to it, um, whereas Labour, as as mentioned, saw it um, serving a cross-section of the community. Uh, the Tories pretty much thought it served those who couldn't aspire or afford um, own occupation. But, um, but nevertheless, in terms of uh, slum clearance, rehousing, um, council house building for those in need, um, the, the Tories were strongly committed and uh, in 1953 it was under Harold Macmillan that the largest number of council homes in a single year were ever built 229,000 which is a pretty pretty impressive total there was a slight diminution in quality um, which which, um, had actually been anticipated by uh, Hugh Dalton who was the the Labour minister that succeeded Bevan in uh, 51 Um, so I wouldn't make too much of that so but I think it is therefore important uh, to, to mention that, uh, or to, to reference the fact that actually the Tories, in this era at least, were, were very much committed to council house building. Alas, that Tory commitment did not last. And in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher, along with her housing minister Michael Heseltine, would bring about a revolution, or rather counter-revolution, in council housing in Britain. It was Anthony Eden who chose for us the goal of a property-owning democracy. But for all the time that I've been in public affairs, that has been beyond the reach of so many who were denied the right to the most basic ownership of all the homes in which they live. They wanted to buy. Many of them could afford to buy. But they happened to live under the jurisdiction of a socialist council which would not sell and did not believe in the independence that comes with ownership. Now Michael Heseltine has given them a chance to turn a dream into reality. The right to buy legislated in 1980 was a seminal moment in the evolution of council housing and uh, attitudes towards it. Uh, that it, that uh, shift had been presaged or preceded to some degree earlier. Uh, council housing had lost some of its sort of shiny gleam, I guess. It had become less aspirational. Owner occupation had increased into the 70s. Um, so in that sense, the clear blue water that Thatcher 
articulated and legislated so powerfully what there was a sort of uh, preceding decline in that in that um, consensus towards the necessity and value of council homes but right to buy was 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 a, was a game changer uh, and as a result of right to buy we've lost approximately 1.9 million social rent homes directly to uh, which which were purchased by their tenants and of course subsequently passed on to landlords of various hues and and, and succeeding generations of own occupiers uh, and in that period we've we replaced we've created around 345,000 new social rent homes. That was John Bowden explaining how the mass building of council homes, for a time, offered ordinary people in Britain the prospect of high quality and affordable housing. And he explained how Thatcher's policies, including right to buy, meant the dream of abundant council housing collapsed. Of course, Thatcher sold that policy as a route to mass home ownership and indeed, for many, that's exactly what did happen. But for those unable to get on the property ladder, the decline of council homes meant something else. Reliance on private landlords. And for those new private renters, there was more bad news. That's because other changes made by Margaret Thatcher, separate from right to buy, made private renting over the period much more expensive. The statistics here really are striking. According to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, In the 1970s, someone renting in the private sector would have spent around 10% of their incomes on rent. Yet by the end of the 1980s, they would have spent around 30% of their incomes on rent. That really is a massive increase. Here's Laurie McFarlane again, laying out the policies that allowed private rents to soar. The right to buy was, was clearly a huge policy, but I think its real power came in the way that it interacted with other policies. So, um... In 1988, we had the abolishing of rent controls, um, which had been in place in some way, shape or form since 1915. And it also introduced the assured shorthold tenancy. You know, this was this was radically new. And under this form of tenure, landlords would be able to vet tenants basically, um, you know, at will without having to have any real reason. And of course, tenancies could be very short, uh, short as six months. Um, so this was quite a significant transfer of power towards private landlords away from tenants in quite a dramatic way. The other thing just to mention here, which is quite important, is um, the way that the government subsidises housing. So up until this point, the main way in which, you know, government had supported housing was through building council housing. So through, quote unquote, bricks and mortar subsidies. So actually building public houses, keeping them in ownership and renting them out. Now, that shifted beginning under Thatcher, so moving away from sort of subsidising bricks and mortar towards subsidising individuals through housing benefit. And so, of course, one result of this dramatic shift with the rise of the private rented sector, with rising rents, abolishing of rent controls, all this kind of stuff, was that rents, as you point out, increased quite dramatically, meant that people, particularly those on lower incomes, couldn't afford it. And so the government started uh, started paying housing benefit to individuals, which of course in turn were just paid to landlords. So it's kind of a subsidy actually towards landlords. And so in 1975, about 80% of housing subsidies were on the supply side, so helping to build uh, council housing. But by 2000, 85% were now on the sort of demand side, basically going towards individuals, helping them pay the rent, which at the end of the day was going into the pocket of landlords. Now, I think those explanations from John and Laurie take us quite a long way in explaining why my rent is so high today. 
There was a period until the 1980s where council homes were abundant and the private rental sector was heavily regulated. In that post-war era, housing was cheap. But from that decade onwards, the stock of council housing shrank and policies which once restricted the power of private landlords were systematically removed. From then on, as the statistics show, rents rose. There is, though, one further aspect of Thatcher's rule which is key to understanding why housing costs rocketed quite as much as they did over the past 40 years. And it concerns reforms to Britain's financial sector. Denisha Kazi is senior economist at the campaigning think tank Positive Money. Really importantly, in the 1980s, we had wide-scale financial deregulation. This really underpins the whole kind of housing system being shifted to a market-based provision system to basically this idea that our houses are our financial security, our kind of key assets for acquiring wealth. And underpinning that really is that lending out mortgages became very easy, basically. That's that's the underlying thing. It became a big part of the profit models of the major banks. Before this, in the post-war era, we regulated this provision of mortgage credit. So we, we only allowed building societies to provide mortgages and they tended to have very personal relationships with their customers. Then we shifted to a system where all the big major banks, our high street banks, who all have investment arms, um, could provide mortgages. And it, and it was a system that mortgage provision on steroids, basically. And we know how that ended up with the financial crisis. Um, But the reason that this is a problem is it makes the availability and the cost of credit very cheap. So what happens is people take out bigger and bigger mortgages for um, housing. And and what we find then is basically more and more money chasing an existing kind of pool of property. And that that's inflationary, basically. And I can see why the liberalisation of, of, of credit, you make credit very easy. It's easy for people to get mortgages and there's a relatively limited supply of housing. So that massively pushes up the price of houses. How does that feed through into increasing the price of, of rents? Because this availab- this easy availability of credit, what's built into it is quite an unequal, un- unfair leveraging of your existing wealth. So the people who can access mortgages very easily over say a first time buyer is going to be someone with existing property so that that gives scope for buy to let landlords basically to come in and buy up a lot of property this existing property we also had in the late 1980s new kind of instruments and um, products especially targeting buy to let landlords so the mortgage market was very much catered towards them and supported them coming into the market. So it wasn't just private ownership of housing, it was also the buy-to-let market that that expanded. And we saw, I guess, lots of small um, private landlords. These aren't big institutions as such. They're just small private landlords that own multiple properties, sometimes maybe even just one property. But it was much easier for them to get access to credit and, and leverage their existing wealth versus, say, a first-time buyer who has to save save up for decades now to be able to afford anything, if at all. So, from the 1980s onwards, Easy Credit created a class of buy-to-let landlords who were encouraged to see housing as a speculative asset rather than as somewhere to live. It was, let's be clear, a very good deal for people with enough assets to buy up more than one property. But for those lacking the wealth or income to buy even one, well they were left to navigate an ever more competitive and cutthroat private rental sector. This unequal playing field was then compounded 
by rising house prices, which meant that escaping the private rental sector became an increasingly insurmountable challenge. This sequence of events, though, does leave one puzzle remaining. And it requires us to return to the issue of supply and demand, which we discussed at the start of this episode. As Laurie McFarlane then explained, the supply and demand of housing isn't all that determines rent levels, but it does matter. And if rising rents and rising house prices had encouraged private house builders to ramp up the production of homes, well, that would have had at least some effect on dampening the rent hikes people in Britain endured following Thatcher's free market reforms. That, of course, is supposed to be how the free market works. The price of a product rises, that increases profits, then new firms respond by entering the market or existing firms ramp up production, and ultimately, that should cause prices to fall. But in the case of housing, that's not what happened. From the 1980s onwards, as prices rose, the quantity of homes produced by private firms remained flat. And combined with the dramatic decline in the building of new council homes, that meant the overall supply of homes actually fell. So to explain why Thatcher's so-called supply-side reforms actually reduced the supply of housing, I spoke to Anna Minton, author of the book Big Capital. Housing doesn't function like a pure market. So the car market, for example, is much simpler to understand. You know, it functions much more like a pure market. People want cars, cars are provided, prices respond to to demand, etc. Housing, there are various pressures on housing which intervene in that market, two key pressures. The first is that a good portion of the housing stock isn't built for Londoners, it's built for investors. Um, The other factor, now we've reached the point where it's in the house builders' interests actually to, because there's such demand for housing, it's in their interests to trickle out housing. Um, This is called land banking, actually to keep prices artificially high. And Policymakers have been scratching their head for years saying, you know, why is the market not responding? Why are they not building more? There are these various distortions in the market which don't make it operate in the way that you would expect a classic market uh, to operate in. So, yeah, house builders don't uh, produce larger amounts of supply. They actually keep it back. They trickle it out so that they can boost their prices. And it's not really about housing. It's about land. It's land prices which are really, really high. You know, the housing costs on top of that are, you know, proportionately, you know, a relatively small uh, proportion. But it is. It's a complete monopoly. The five, ten top house builders have a complete stranglehold over um, the housing economy. And they also have a complete stranglehold over government. And they're also huge uh, political donors as well. So it turns out leaving private developers to bring down the price of housing doesn't really work. Land doesn't function like a pure market. A few companies own a large proportion of it, and they have very little interest in letting its price fall. How inconvenient for the rest of us. So up to now on this episode, to blame for my sky-high rent, we have policies like right to buy, the deregulation of the private rental sector, and the deregulation of the financial sector. And we have the practices of private developers. But I want to end this episode by addressing what some might consider an elephant in the room. 
I've posed the question, why is my rent so high? And then focused on rental prices in Hackney, because that's where I happen to live. And the answers have largely involved decisions by businesses and government. Perhaps, though, I should be looking closer to home. What if the problem isn't Tories or developers, but rather people like me? Again, to put my cards on the table, I was brought up just down the road in Leighton, so I'm not the archetype of a home county's gentrifier who gets a frill from moving somewhere gritty. But I do live in an ex-council flat, and it's probably reasonable to assume I'm from a more privileged class background than whoever had the original social tenancy. So am I the problem here? Should I stop blaming Thatcher and recognise that gentrification and gentrifiers are the real reason Hackney has sky-high rents? Anna Minton again. I think you can say that gentrification has a lot to do with it, but whether or not it's the gentrifiers themselves is a quite different question. So when you look at the academic literature on gentrification, gentrification is a hotly contested topic. Uh, it's been fought over by by academics for, for years, you know, the last 30 years. Um, pretty much ever since Ruth Glass famously coined the concept in, in the mid-1960s. And there are two key theories of gentrification. On the one hand, you've got the idea of economic gentrification, which is driven by developers moving into areas where rents are low and where they see the potential for huge rises in rents. And it is that rent gap which attracts capital and they come in and, you know, they gentrify the neighbourhood. And this theory of gentrification famously is, is, was, was first put forward by, a, by an academic called Neil Smith. Um, then there's another theory of gentrification, which is the consumer theory of gentrification, which is that as the post-industrial city uh, sort of grew in, in strength, you know, the, the old factories and um, uh, sort of the inner city, the industrial inner city sort of fell empty, workers' cottages, warehouses, etc. Um, consumers wanted to come back into the city, you know, it became cool to live in, in, in the inner city. And so they were voting with their feet uh, and using their, their, their sort of growing affluence to do up their houses and sort of, you know, to, to gentrify properties. So these have been the two sort of hotly contested debates. I think it's a, actually, I, I don't think we need to have a huge row about this. I think both can coexist. But to my mind, it's very much driven by the rent gap. So when developers spot that opportunity, here's a piece of the city, well located, lots of potential amenities, which, you know, is very, very low in value. There's an opportunity for massive rises in value. So they come in, build, refurbish, whatever it is. And that's really, for me, a very big catalyst for the process. But I think you can have the consumer-led uh, uh, model of gentrification going side by side with that. I don't see that it needs to be uh, either or. But, you know, it's a little bit like all of these arguments which we seem to have about every sphere uh, of of our lives uh, today. You know, is it an individual issue or is it a broader structural issue? You know, and I think it's very much a broader structural issue. And I think the rent gap argument, so this idea, you know, the value is not or the land is not getting all the value it could get. So a property developer sees an opportunity. I see, that applies, I suppose, to shiny new developments. 
But there is also an element of gentrification, you know, to put my cars on the table again, I live in an ex council flat. So that was there already. The housing yeah. stock has stayed exactly the same. The only thing that's changed is the background of the person who, sure. who lives there. And the, the sense I get in much of Hackney is that, you know, it's not that these houses have become posher per se. Yeah. It's just that people who are from a different class background now want to live there mm. and they can outcompete potentially some of the original residents of Hackney in terms of rent levels. Yeah. So I suppose when it comes to existing housing stock, it, is it not kind of all the consumer side Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, I think it moves in lockstep because if we take Hackney, you know, which is also chock full of shiny new developments as well, you know, it's brought with it that whole culture of bars and restaurants and amenities that are going to appeal to gentrifiers who want to move in and have everything on their do doorstep. And, you know, they might be more the sort of people who want to have the, the cafes and the sort of sourdough bread for a fiver or whatever it is, cereal killer cafe. But, you know, it all goes together as one big picture. Put it this way. I don't think by moving out of your flat in Hackney, you're going to make a very big difference to the picture of gentrification in Hackney. Well, that's a relief. Thank you to my guests, Laurie McFarlane, John Boughton, Denisha Kazzi and Anna Minton. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to find out more about the topics discussed, I'll be putting out longer interviews with John and Anna in the next couple of weeks. I had really interesting conversations with both of them and with more time, we were able to get into much more detail. Those interviews will be for patrons only. So if you haven't already, do head over to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod and sign up. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. For now, I've been Michael Walker and you've been listening to Crash Course. <laughs>